Welcome to Coded in Canada, a podcast about technology entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders in Victoria, BC. I'm your host, Sean Crabtree. Today, we're joined by Scott Phillips, president of Starfish Medical, which he founded in 1999. Under his leadership, Starfish has grown into a diverse, professional organization with clients around the world and a 100% focus on medical devices. Prior to starting Starfish, he worked in diverse areas such as lithium battery development and manufacturing, UV spectroscopy, (laughs) I can't even say it right. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Instrumentation and hi-fi audio speakers. Scott is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Engineering, a 2017 recipient of the Viatech Technology Champion Award, and volunteers with Junior Achievement Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, and currently, you're the president of the Victoria BC chapter. Uh, I was the president of Entrepreneurs Organization. I've moved on to the learning chair this this year. Okay. Um, and uh, you're the UBC and Life. Sciences uh, Chairman of the MedTech Committee, is that correct? Uh, Correct, for Life Sciences BC. Okay. Um, Scott holds 17 patents and a degree in engineering physics from the University of British Columbia. Um, So to get started, uh, Scott, would you just tell us a little bit about uh, your early years and if you always saw yourself as an entrepreneur before you went to university? Yes. Uh, So I grew up in Tawasson, far away from here on the other side of the ocean. And uh, uh, for those of you who don't know where that is, it's Greater Vancouver area. And um, so I grew up in a, a very warm uh, household. Uh, uh, we, our family went to church and, you know, there was dozens of other families that we knew. And uh, the elementary school was five blocks away. Right by. So imagine growing up in a smallish town where you kind of know people. And my dad was a well-respected doctor in the town. And... Uh, that was kind of the setting. In our family, uh, entrepreneurship was uh, was highly regarded. Although, interestingly, my gr- my grandfather was a, a missionary. Grandparents were missionaries in China. And that's where my mother was born. So, but that's in some sense similar to entrepreneurship. It's uh, it's valuing experience, sort of mission driven, and uh, a little bit less so about uh, how wealthy you become. Which. <laughs> In my experience, most entrepreneurs are driven more by their ideals and by their autonomy than they're driven by wealth. Um, and then, so what brought you to engineering physics at UBC? Was that clear? Uh, you know, I, I had this creative impulse. I was a bit of an outsider in high school and so on. Still part of a community, felt part of a community, but was always kind of on the fringe. Very autonomous. Lots of projects on the go. Started my first little company at age twelve. It was uh, framing pictures. <clears throat> the, the rafters of my parents' house in, in the basement are still full of uh, uh, still full of picture framing moldings. I didn't quite know how to how to how to do a business plan at that point. So the results of my profitability showed up on the balance sheet in the form of uh, inventory. So, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Those are some rough, uh, rough lessons to learn. I can see you started your career in hardware as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. Uh, dear. So, um, you know, I, I, I had high ideals in terms of how much impact I wanted to have, and and uh, and of all the departments at UBC in uh, in engineering, engineering physics just seemed like the one that turned my crank the most. It was very diverse, and it was. Uh, 
based on the really deriving things from fundamentals and so on. And uh, so, and once I got there, um, it was like I found my tribe, as it were, like all these people that were, you know, it's almost one of the big distinguishing characteristics is they weren't embarrassed at all to be smart and to know things, which, you know, in high school that you're not supposed to sort of to be knowledgeable, right? It's kind of a, uh, it's, it's kind of uncool to know things. And, uh, and uh, these people were amazing, just the diversity of their, their curiosity and their innovations and their creativity and so on. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it was, super challenging it's, you know at the time was the hardest program to get into uh in engineering and i believe it still is and um so just really stimulating environment is this the same department that has a prank involving an e every single year uh the, well there's a prank there's a variety of pranks they would hang volkswagens from different yes. things at the time wasn't it the pool uh 10 meter uh, board? They could, though there's different ones every okay. year that whatever the students dream up. In my year, we hung a, a 10 foot high flashing E under the Broad Street Bridge. That was. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute, that wasn't the ridge sign E, was it? No, we did not steal off the ridge, although I bet they did one year. So. Oh, they did, in fact, yeah, yeah, they did. We made our own E. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> but we had to kind of hotwire into the bridge to, uh, to get power, to be able to power our E. Really? Actually, the year after me, what they actually. They actually reprogrammed the lights of the Lionsgate Bridge to flash Morse code. So that was. Wow. And was the Morse code E? Uh, no, it was a message. I forgot what it was. Okay. Something to do with engineering. Okay. National Engineering Week or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> wow. What fun. Um, and, um, and then from there, um, you spent 10 years before starting. Uh, Starfish, which is now uh, Canada's largest medical device uh, design, development, and contract manufacturing company. Yep. Uh, they enable uh, med tech innovators to overcome challenging technology obstacles to create breakthrough products that improve health and to save lives. Uh, tell me how Starfish came about. Oh, okay, sure. So uh, I was lucky in 1989 when I graduated to, to get a job offer. It was from the company I'd done a project with during my final year. Because at the time, it's hard to believe in this environment, but at the time it was hard to get a job. You graduated as an engineer. And, um, and so I went to uh, work on lithium batteries. And this company had invented lithium batteries to some extent. Wow. At least. And um, it was a giant startup. Had raised something like two hundred million dollars, spun out by actually one of the professors that I studied with at UBC, mm. and um, so it was amazing. Like this giant manufacturing plant, they were producing hundreds of thousands of batteries a month, mm -hmm. and there were all sorts of problems, as there always are in startups and in manufacturing settings. And so I had a wonderful opportunity to get educated on the ground in a high-intensity environment, and. Uh, and then I actually, uh, after about four years, I left there and went traveling to uh, South America for two years, as wow. you do when you're in your 20s. And... Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> when you're on it, even though I was on a bit of a tear in terms of uh, working on interesting uh, projects, I had that urge to, uh, to go traveling. Wow, that's wonderful. Um, and so did you not work at all? You just traveled for two years? Well, and interestingly... Uh, I got to uh, South America. I'd been trying to learn a little Spanish on my own. We got to Ecuador. Uh -huh. And within a week or so, I was with my girlfriend. Within a week or so, uh, 
we went to the Canadian Embassy in in Quito and and asked, you know, is there any anything we can do to sort of connect? Because we always, when I'm traveling, I always like to connect, right? Yeah. Um, and they said, well, there's this organization called SESI. You can uh, go work with it. They take professional people and they put them in the field on projects. And um, and so I went down to the SESI office and. Uh, uh, the challenge was that uh, they all spoke French because it's actually a Quebec <laughs> organization, and some of them spoke some English, and but not but not enough, and uh, and and I didn't speak good enough Spanish by that point. So I said, but they were quite interested, and so I said, give me a month, I'll come back, and hopefully I'll know enough Spanish to be able to uh, to survive doing something. So I crammed Spanish, hired someone to give me one on one lessons, uh, and uh, and went back in a month and. They gave me a project to design a solar lighting system for a village that was off the grid. Wow. And uh, so I had to kind of design it and then go find all the pieces, design my own little light fixtures, all sorts of stuff. And uh, I had to buy all these pieces and negotiate on the phone in Spanish, which was really scary and, uh, and intimidating, but uh, managed to buy all the bits and then went up to this village and we installed it all and it worked. And, uh, Wow, and how big was the village? Uh, it was probably well. It's mostly a farming community, right? With a small, and there was like a. It's actually really one building. It was one. It was like their central meeting house that they had. They wanted lighting to be able to have meetings in there and so on in the night. So. Um, and have you kept up with that? Have you returned to that at all? I have wow. never gone back there. That's. I'm sure they're on the grid now, and all that old stuff is ripped up. But uh. <laughs> right, right. Well, you never know. Yeah, <laughs> just like your stuff in the rafters, still could be kicking around. Could be. Um, well, that's fascinating. What did you come away with after two years on the road? Like two that? years. Ah, uh, you know, it's it's a wonderful. There was so many experiences. Hitchhiking down through Chile. I sailed around Cape Horn. I spent time in the Amazon. Spent time living with the alpaca herders of the highlands of, of Bolivia on another project. And that's, uh, you know, one of the things you realize is that people who don't have anything are actually happier than those of us who have things. <laughs> that this kind of the irony, that community is really the heart of what people need more so than, than, than wealth. Yeah, they have a real richness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful culture. What drew you to South America? Um, it was a, a place I knew nothing about, really. That's um, I had spent a year when I was in university. I'd taken a year off and uh, traveled all over Southeast Asia and across China and Nepal and and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so South America was a big blank spot on the map as far as I was concerned. Oh wow! Well, for me as well. I can't wait to get down there. Um, I went west to Europe. Have you been to Europe? Yes. Okay. Have you done any traveling there? Uh, a couple of years ago, I took we took our family. We've got three kids now with the same girlfriend. Who's, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we Wonderful. took our, took our family to France and cycled across France, and uh, and uh, uh, we liked sort of doing different things like that. That's beautiful. Um, very rewarding. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, so when you came back, um, did you go back to Vancouver? Yes, actually, I came back. It was Expo '86 time. Oh wow! And uh, mm. and uh, so Vancouver was very exciting at the time. Yeah. And uh, so I hung out at. I remember the last the last thing I I did because I was doing this this trip very cheaply. My cheapest flight was to San Francisco, and then I hitchhiked back up to San Francisco, and 
I got dropped off at my parents' house and uh, they were all happy to see me and uh, and uh, then uh, went to experience Expo 86 for a couple of weeks and bang right back into school again and uh, for three years of engineering physics. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. Um, I remember Expo 86. I was 13 at the time. Yeah. Um, I went around with a little passport and got all the stamps. Yeah, that's right. It was, it, was, it was very international. That's right. That's oh, it was incredible. And and to think that just a few years before that, I mean, the, the place was practically like a nuclear waste. Right. Plant. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. It was this? an old railway switchyard. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's incredible to see how it's grown up, especially yeah. Vancouver. So I grew up in Kits. Yeah. Um, and to see Vancouver now, it's, mm-hmm. it's a complete renaissance, right? I mean, yeah, city absolutely. Of glass and these, and these skyscrapers. Um, it's really nice to have seen it grown up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what brought you to Victoria? Ah, it's all my girlfriend's fault. You see, when, it, when, I, when I got done with traveling in South America, so about a year in, she got accepted into med school. And so she flew back and she, she decided to go to Calgary. And so I wasn't done with that travel thing. I hadn't given up my life and sold my car for, to, to return so quickly. So I carried on for another year. Nice. And, uh, and she, uh, she, she went to Calgary. So I went to Calgary. And then lived there for a while and got into more contract engineering in Calgary, mm-hmm. sort of revived my engineering career. That's sort of the whole spectroscopy thing and uh-huh. dental equipment and archery equipment, a variety of different things. Um, and I, and uh, I didn't realize at the time, but that job, that the lithium battery job, mm-hmm. ended up being my only job I ever had. It was mm-hmm. other than co-ops during university, but uh, the only sort of career-oriented actual job with a salary. So when I was in Calgary, I was contracting, getting used to being independent, basically. And then uh, she got posted to Victoria, you know, and at, uh, there's this thing called the CARMS match where they, the, uh, the med students at the time uh, would go to their mail slot and uh, there'd be an envelope in there and they open it up and it says, you are going to be a radiologist and you're going to study in Regina. Or... <laughs> hey. <laughs> I hope I like it. That's right. <laughs> now there's some application process, but that's the, 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 there's some influence by how many spots there are and who needs what. And uh, and so she got matched to Victoria for family maps. Mm. And so, and we'd always wanted to come back to the coast. Mm-hmm. As much as Calgary was great, it, it didn't have an ocean. And uh, and when you grow up beside the ocean, you kind of get it in your soul, right? It's, it's so true. It's so true. I found that as well. Um, and 1999, what a great time to come back to Victoria. Yeah, that's I, right. I mean, it's right before kind of a tipping point into moving. Yeah, to it was actually it was Victoria actually 97, and mm-hmm. uh, and I, 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 you know, once again in a new city, not knowing anybody, uh, set out trying to find some uh, contract work I could do. Mm-hmm. And the one that I found, the most substantial one, was uh, in Vancouver doing doing audio speakers. It was a startup. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Sonogistics and designing uh, planar magnetic speakers, which audiophiles know about, but at the time were kind of a exotic. And we were trying to make them into a mass technology or mass mass market kind of uh, product. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are some pretty exciting couple of years as well, working on that. And did you succeed? Yes. Oh, wow. Excellent. Yeah. And now what's the connection to Starfish? Something happened there. In those couple of years, ah uh, yes, that so a the, the big life. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, so that was contracting as well, and I had other contracts, and uh, and uh, I started uh, so I built this this newfangled thing. It was called a website, 
<laughs> I've heard of those. That's right. In the mid '90s, that was still kind yeah. of unusual. There was, sure. uh, and uh, and uh, it was called Scott Phillips Engineering, and um, and the, the tagline was Substance and Style. So the idea that was our clever tagline. It was, <laughs> the, it was all the idea that we integrated technology innovation and human centric design. This is industrial design, human factors. Sure. So uh, that's one of the things I'd learned in my first uh, earlier earlier part of my career. I'd never even heard of industrial design when I went to university. Right. And yet. Those people study usability, and they study workflow, and they study emotional engagement, and they study all, all the things that engineers assume that they're just going to design into their product somehow. But right, but uh, uh, it's like a whole different language. So yeah, it's a complete other calculus. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I was lucky in some ways to get uh, that idea early that that really adoption. This product success is driven by a combination of the innovation of it and also the human-centric design of it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter how great your technology or your algorithm is if the interface is not usable or the way that it engages with people doesn't fit what they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one thing that happened in that uh, period. Uh, but literally, I just created a website and... Then, lo and behold, I got an inquiry in about 1990, uh, yeah, 99 probably. I can't quite recall the, the date. Yeah, it was 99. Um, I remember it was around my mom's birthday. And, um, and had a, uh, an inquiry from a doctor who uh, had done some innovation in, uh, in ultrasound for eyes to, to make sure LASIK surgery was just happening. There was big centers springing across Canada. Um, because they were, because they were also selling it to the U.S. at the time. Yeah, it was all the rage. Yeah, and um, so this doctor uh, contacted me. It was associated with Cornell University, and he had this prototype, and he wanted to turn it into a product. And uh, and so uh, I went to visit. He actually had an office in Vancouver because he was working with one of those big LASIK centers, and uh, we talked for a long time. And uh, ended up, I ended up putting a group together to propose on this project. And uh, because he was associated with a big LASIK center, they had a lot of capital and, the, and a need for the product. So uh, I put a group together and uh, then we put a proposal together and, uh, and they liked the proposal. They were evaluating other companies. And then they said they were going to come to visit, including their group from New York. And uh, so I was, my office was the spare bedroom of our apartment on Fairfield Road in Victoria. So there was, there was no office. Yeah. So I had to get an office, which I, I, I arranged to get some desks at the back of another company, an engineering company. And uh, had my industrial designer uh, make up a sign for our company to put on their door so that uh, when the guys from New York came through, it would look a little bit more like oh, a they're company. In the they're in the back. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> And that was the start, really. And uh, we did a good job with that product. Um, there was some some hiccups that the LASIK uh, company actually went bankrupt in the middle of all that and left us with a lot of stress and a lot of debt and so on. But we persevered through all that. The usual entrepreneur survival story. Yeah. Um, and based on that, had this platform, had this office, had this uh, identity, and then went out to sell that service to others. Huh. 
And was that Starfish at the time? Uh, it re- became Starfish. Right. Actually, the names uh, started to become a bit of a liability. Uh, only in that I was the face of the company and I had my name on it. It was called Scott Phillips Engineering. And it kind of made it look like it was me pretending to have a company. And mm-hmm. so uh, so we, I renamed it Starfish at the time. Uh, Starfish Product Engineering. And uh, that later narrowed down to just Starfish Medical. Okay. What made you turn towards medical itself? Was, was that something in the beginning that you started out with? You know, I, I knew we needed to specialize in something. I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to some extent it was just the coincidence that our first big project was a medical project. Right. And between that one and the next project that came along uh, for a company in Iowa, um, we developed uh, quality system, infrastructure, regulatory knowledge, a bunch of things that were specialized to that sector. And were also barriers to entry for others to compete with us. So um, after some consideration, we decided to turn away anything that wasn't that. That's one of the hardest things to do in business, right? Oh, completely. To, to turn away work. Well, especially and, as a startup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, especially when you're not, not rich in cash and you've just gone through a survival scare, right? And, uh, and, uh, um, but I, I attribute that decision as being one of the foundations of our success. What made you make that decision? Did you see something on the horizon at that time? I would not spring. say so. It was actually we had at the time I had a uh, second in command office manager guy uh, who he just had a bee in his bonnet about specialization. And uh, he drove me there faster than I would have gone on my own. So I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. That uh, he just kept hammering away on me to, to, to decide what we were going to do and just do that. And uh, which was uh, was wise advice. Were there a lot of competitors at that time, or were there any competitors in that type of specialization? So in uh, British Columbia, there were no other companies that only did that. There was one company in Vancouver that did that. They had a product line and did some services as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the world of, in all of North America, of course, there were dozens of companies doing that. Right. But I wasn't competing with them because I was only selling in Vancouver at the time. Right. Now Vancouver is about 5% of our business and where British Columbia is. So, um, so that, you know, we've, we've grown out of Vancouver, but at the time that was where, where I was knocking on doors and so on and trying to build up a base of business. How did you build up a base of business? That is a great question. And because you don't go to engineering physics school because you <laughs> love cold calling, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> there is no cold calling school as well. Well, that's... Uh, yeah, you study partying if you if you want to if, 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 if you want to love cold calling. Um, and uh, yeah, UBC they had this thing called the Forty Beer Club that you could you could join if you were in engineering. Uh, you had to drink forty beers at one sitting, and I guarantee I was not a member of that. And wow. so that. <laughs> oh my god, that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah, it was. Anyway, that, that was a whole other culture that uh, that didn't so, so much fit in engineering physics, but uh, right, right. Um, but the question was, uh, so how did you build up those uh, those contracts? Oh yes, right. Yeah. So basically, I just uh, I just you know I built up this team, and my personality type of brain lends itself to 
to project oversight and to synthesizing and vision, not so much to focusing on a lot of details for a long time. So, so I needed a team. So I felt like I was almost stuck, right? It was a, it was a, uh, this critical thing. Here I'd spent all this energy and time trying to build a career where I could do great engineering, design things. And what, what the situation seemed to demand was that I let everybody else do that and I go find them work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I could manage them doing the work. Um, sure. So it was a, actually a confusing, difficult, scary time. And, you know, like, what, am I, what have I done? Have I engineered the wrong career in essence? Right. And, um, and so, the, and this is actually kind of an interesting entrepreneurial aspect, right? You have to take on kind of whatever job nobody else has is yours, right? That's, that's it, right? <laughs> What's left? <laughs> that would not be good engineering, but uh, that's kind of the, the inevitable piece of what, what you take home when you're an entrepreneur. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, so I, one thing I learned was that when you are making phone calls and contacting people you never met before, um, that it gets much easier once you've made two or three of them. Mm-hmm. That. When you go back to it the next day, it's hard again. But once you've got the ball rolling a little, it actually gets easier and easier. Okay. And um, so I actually just said, I'm going to dedicate one day a week to doing nothing but either calling or driving around visiting people. Okay. And um, and so, and I was always amazed at the end of the day of visiting four or five different companies, how much uh, a, a fairly cool, informative kind of discussion would turn into a warm discussion about what their problems were. Mm-hmm. So it's it's maybe uncovering a skill, I guess, or a, an added personality thing of building connections and building trust, which mm-hmm. is the essence of sales, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's really about having trust and then helping people solve their problems. Right. And if you can give somebody insight into their own problem that they didn't have before, mm-hmm. something they've been, f- they've been fretting over or concerned about for a long time, and you can give them some insight, then all of a sudden, you have a permission to start talking about solutions. And um, so I learned that I was actually a pretty good sales guy. Hmm. And in fact, the part of engineering I like the best is this early stage inventing the thing, synthesizing, which, and I, I, I remember maybe six months later looking back on the number of sales that we had and the team that was working away and the fact that I wasn't really missing not picking resistors and laying out circuits and, and, uh, and tolerancing drawings and so on. That, uh, uh, not to minimize the design importance, but sure. uh, but I was adequately getting my uh, itch scratched uh, by by doing the uh, talking to a lot of different companies and inventing things. Well, it seems like um, a driving force might have been solving problems. Yeah, and this is solving problems in a in a different way. That's right, and still using the technical muscle per right. se. For sure. It's giving up on the ability to actually make the thing that works in the end, but mm. designing the concept for the thing and how the pieces mm. are going to work together. Right, integrating uh, the pieces. Yeah, That's I right. find that to be very stimulating. I still do. And I, and now we've got 135 people, and mm. I've got a lot of other responsibilities, but I still find that I have visions quite a lot, and I, and I still get involved in the selling early relationship piece. Mm. And... And I solve a mix of technology and business problems, basically, trying to invent companies for our clients to some extent. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a, yeah. 
bit of an ecosystem for them to come into. Yeah, well, we take, after a while, I realized that our mission really was not just to design a thing that met the specs that they defined, help them figure out what the spec was, but also help them figure out what the right product was to make them successful. Mm -hmm. Take on the mission of our client becoming successful. It's a much more satisfying thing because as an engineer, there's nothing worse than working away on something diligently for a couple of years and at the end of the time realizing there's some unstated constraint that nobody realized that makes that be the wrong solution, right? Right. And did you find there was a lot of people out there at the time who had ideas like this? Uh, that, that wanted to, to, to mm-hmm. develop products, mm-hmm. potential mm-hmm. customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was enough. It's, I mean, it right. was a scratchy existence. I mean, I don't want to paint too, too uh, like it wasn't just a matter of saying, hey, come on in, guys. I've got this service. And everybody piles up at the door. Doors are open. <laughs> <laughs> Take a number. Uh, there was nothing happening unless I made it happen is kind of the feeling that I had. And I had to search everywhere all around North America, I even start to... And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that was really another one of those keys was mm-hmm. realizing I had to be looking all over the place. And how did you find them? Because I'm sure there must have been a market investigatory process that you had to Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, you can find medical device companies if you go looking for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, it's easy to find giant companies like Medtronic and St. Jude and so on. But, but as a small company without a big track record, those are not your customers, right? Right. You basically have to go find companies that don't have a lot of money and help them to get in a position where they can get money. So we kind of cut our teeth on startup companies with a big dream that uh, we could work with and align with their story. That uh, we're, we're gonna make them valuable enough to get their next round, basically. Wow. Um, do you mind if we just take a moment to um, talk about our sponsor? Um, again, it's a returning sponsor, Roundtable Consulting. Uh, Roundtable Consulting serves organizations in providing facilitation and research, as well as business and strategic planning needs. Roundtable Consulting also helps with reconciliation, from building a more inclusive workplace to diversity training. You can learn more about Roundtable uh, Consulting at roundtableconsulting.ca. My thanks to Roundtable Consulting for supporting us again. And back to the conversation. So from there, um, we were, we were I, I branched to the present, but or some philosophies, I guess. But back back to the uh, uh, knocking on doors and building momentum. So so the follow on to that uh, ophthalmology scanning machine. I mean, I got actually interestingly enough, I got quite involved with them because that was the great hope at the time that we this would be a big project. And so I started having almost daily calls with their president, who's based out of Florida. And uh, turns out he was quite ADD, right? He was a prototypical sales guy who'd been hired into the president role. Yeah. And so he didn't actually feel comfortable reading through contracts in detail. And he was trying to negotiate all these partnerships and so on. So he would actually bring me in to help make all of his business calls and... Uh, and have all these partnership discussions. Mm-hmm. So I was, and I was, the circumstances were favorable. So I could basically get educated in the business of medical devices, the business of ophthalmology, sales, marketing strategy, partnerships, wow. all sorts of stuff. Just right. from my seat on this in Victoria in an old warehouse where we had our business that, uh, 
And uh, so I was essentially participating in those negotiations and suggesting things and adding clauses to contracts and all sorts of things. And uh, Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I bet you hadn't thought of yourself doing that when you were in school. <laughs> I, you know, I've, I've always been aspirational. I think it's good to imagine you know, the logical extreme of what you're doing and what it would look like if you're super successful. It's, it's, it sounds a little pretentious, but it's it's actually For just, sure. I think it's a required element of entrepreneurship. So that, right. that if you are if you are successful, that it's not shocking to you. It's not like you just stumbled across it. That you, you, you're, you're, to some extent, you're living an aspirational dream. Yeah, as I've grown older, I'm just in my early 40s now, um, what struck me now is that I'm maybe halfway through my career. Right. And that's a fascinating uh, realization because I have another 20 years and it's not moving, you know, um, um, step by step. It's going to be um, exponential. It will totally be exponential. I have the same thought. That blows my mind. I can't even Mm -hmm. imagine myself 20, 30 years from now. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah, I've been on that journey. I'm 10 years farther along the journey than you are. And, but I'm not ready to think I'm three quarters of my way through my career. I, feel, I, I, uh, I was just at a function at UBC last weekend, in fact, and, it, and it's our, coming up to our 30th anniversary of our class graduating. And uh, that's a long time. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm definitely more than halfway through my, my, uh, my, uh, my career. But I don't know how much, uh, how much more than half. It's, a, it's so much fun. And what... What will be the evolution? But I feel like I'm on that exponential uh, curve. And the fact that we don't have a, a physical job is really fascinating as well. As mm-hmm. long as you obviously can maintain your senses, you could work well into your 70s, even 80s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, where do you think you see yourself in, say, 20, 30 years from now? It's, um, I, I'll be engaged in things. I mean, that, I, this notion of work-life balance for entrepreneurs is is uh, a bit of an abstract, right? It's always with you, and um, and your family's always with you as well. And it's it's not like I neglect my family, but it's the uh, but uh, you think about uh, business at night, and you think about your family in the day, and it's yeah. it's kind of it's all tied together, <laughs> right? <laughs> and what are you doing during the day is all that changes and, and yeah and that's right and, yeah so i i you know evolution like i've joined several boards and able to have a bigger impact just by talking to people and animating them and giving them suggestions and challenging them on their directions and strategies and so on mm-hmm. um and helped build industry type organizations and running conferences so there's a variety of things that i do that are not strictly uh designing medical equipment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, within uh, five to 10 years, I'll probably be the chair of a group of companies uh, with, with uh, and quite involved in industry things and uh, advising various companies and um, uh, just pursuing the, uh, the things that I find really animating, which is helping other people be successful. And so I, 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 I don't see it sort of carrying on and then ending. I see it more just diversifying and maybe choosing what level to uh, to pursue that. Do you see yourself writing books or Yeah, absolutely. I, I do have an ideas or some ideas for books. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, I've, I've sort of, I keep a running a list of ideas to write about, to speak about and so on. And I get asked to give, give talks quite a lot and people often ask me at the end of a talk, well, could you, would you like to write that into a book? I'd love to read a book you right. wrote it about that thing you just talked about, uh, which is encouraging. So uh, we'll see what happens. Okay. If there is still such a thing as books in 10 years. Right. <laughs> All right. So I've now plugged my laptop in <laughs> and uh, had an interesting thought about batteries. Where will batteries be in the future? Because I, as far as I understand it, um, battery technology has not truly made a mass, many, made any massive leaps in the last few decades. Uh, so that's probably true. Lithium was a big advance over the... Um, the what were they called before they, they became the nickel metal hydrides after that and but still lithium ion is the main sort of uh, rechargeable that we use mm -hmm. uh, and they're expensive and uh, I, I do see some major breakthroughs in batteries coming up over the next decade or so hmm. pressure is just going to get higher and higher uh, it's partly about cars it's partly all of, also about the grid it's about uh, fossil fuel transitions if you go to uh, renewable sources of power, then they're mostly periodic, right? You've got to be able to store. And uh, pumping water uphill is super inefficient. So you, you, you need better batteries. So there's so much driver that will be better chemistries evolved. So uh, it's not a book. It's not going to be driven by your laptop. It's going to be driven by uh, how, do we, how do we transition? This sort of race between climate change and innovation that's going to be more and more a theme over the next decade or moving off so off of fossil fuels mm -hmm. when do you see that becoming um a bit of a tipping point that is a great question um i mean i i hear about technologies and i don't know what the pros and cons of them are um you know they, they can look super promising in technology development things can look amazing and then you actually run through the discipline of testing them in a methodical way and you realize they've got some critical flaw, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there are some chemistries based on iron that look promising, I'm told. Um, um, but I don't know what the pros and cons, you know, our lithium technology that we started with ended up uh, having a big disadvantage because it used, used actually metallic lithium. So they were more efficient, had more power than the current lithium ion batteries do. But they were very vulnerable during the recharge cycle and the end things would go wrong because lithium has some, some peculiar properties that uh, ended up being better to avoid and to, to give up the efficiency and to, to, to uh, go between two chemical forms rather than um, to the, all the way back to the metal. So when do you see a tipping point happening? If so if, if you say that a tipping point where electric cars become normal mm -hmm. and where people store power in their garage from the windmills uh, during the windy time, they can use when the, during the not windy time or the solar panels during the day, they can use at night. Um, I would hope that around 10 years from now, we would, we would hit the capability to do that. Mm -hmm. And even at that, with the current trajectory of fossil fuel use, we're still going to be in for some some heat and some crop failure and some migration and a whole lot of issues. But uh, that's the hope that the tipping point comes fast enough, right? 
So since we live in Victoria, would you say this would be a great place to be during that time? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking yes, from well, a very this is, self-centered this is a point whole of different Victoria. direction for this conversation, but amongst places you could be, Victoria would have to be one of the better ones for sure. That's great. <laughs> so it's only going to get a little warmer? Yes. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So uh, I think getting back here to uh, to your business, in 2012, um, I read that you asked your team, what would it look like? Uh, what would amazing look like in five years? Yeah. Um, so it's been five years. And from what I understand, uh, they hit every single target um, that they had planned, um, growing revenues from $5 million to $20 million and exceeding your profitability targets. Uh, how did your team do that? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, point. So in that year, we uh, it's not quite true that we exceeded every target because we were being very aspirational. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we were a company at that time, you know, 12 years old. We we'd established ourselves. We had a right to exist. We actually could make a plan for the year that bore some semblance of uh, what would actually happen. And we had managers and so on. Um, but we, there was still a lot of suckiness in the company. It's piece yeah. things that, that we were not happy with, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, we had a quality system that was all on paper that we were, it was adequate for regulatory compliance, but was awkward to use. And mm -hmm. uh, there was inefficiency all over the place. And there was, uh, and our marketing was nowhere. Like we, <clears throat> our sales was all about direct sales right. and pass along referrals and so on, which is very slow. Right. Um, we had no profile in our industry. We, we we had never given a talk in front of an audience of, our, of wow. professionals in medical devices before. Mm -hmm. When I look back on it, you know, and we just said to ourselves, we, we did a yellow sticky exercise. We got in a room, the, the senior management team, and said, okay, here's our situation. Uh, what would it look like to be amazing? Like, uh, <clears throat> and I totally recommend this as an exercise for any company in any situation. Just to, to, because it's so animating for the for the team just to 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 have that feel like, and and it, they, and we're not allowed to write down things like we should do more of this or less of that. It's, right. It's not what about. It's not about. It's like, imagine us in that situation, and what does that look like? Mm -hmm. And uh, so we wrote down, uh, our quality system will be so good people will pay us to buy it from us. And uh, we will be asked to speak at all the top conferences in North America. And uh, and our articles will be in demand by all the magazines in our space. And uh, people will come to Victoria for a conference on medical devices that's known around wow. North America. And uh, um, and we will have uh, tripled in sales and and uh, our profitability will be better. And, you know, we wrote about 50 different things down. And, wow. Uh, and, uh, that's sizable. Yeah. It was just a bunch of ideas. Sure. That, that, so, I, so I wouldn't say it was a plan. It's more of a, just like a galvanizing vision of what good could look like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them turned into, well, if we're going to make a better quality system, what are we going to do this year and so on? And, uh, and if we're going to be known for our content, but we better get at it. Let's, let's, see, if, let's see if we can get engineers to write, write things. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, 
so that so that actually that next year I, I I convened a group of about ten engineers and and I said okay guys we're all going to turn into writers we're going to meet uh, once a month for lunch and our goal will be to produce uh, uh, four blogs a month and um, and if we get any good at it maybe we'll see if somebody else will be willing to carry our content as well oh. and for now just write about what you know about right. and. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to pay anything for it, uh, just because this is good for you too. So you just you just write the stuff, and uh, I mean that constraint has get, has evolved somewhat since then. But uh, mm -hmm. I think we now pay four hours for a blog. But uh, yeah. but at the time we had no money, so we just and we were all committed to working together to uh, to make the company successful. So mm -hmm. um, so we started writing and. Uh, Started getting a couple of, of uh, pieces of unique content uh, uh, every month, and I I would write about business strategy kind of things and uh, about uh, uh, I wrote one called BC Squeeze Insurance. It was about the the, the value of a of a of a design consultancy to uh, to be able to, to to start up and stop, so that when you're out looking for money, you're not losing all your knowledge, and nobody can squeeze you for uh, for on valuation. Right? So mm -hmm. that's the perspective of the startup entrepreneur. Um, and I wrote one. It was it was, uh, it was about Ingvar Camp Camprad, the founder of IKEA. It was called Ingvar was right. It was all about an idea without a price has no meaning. Was his his famous uh, line. And uh, in other words, you have to design. The price of your medical device into the basic design concept, because uh, if you design something that's the wrong price with the wrong margin, your company won't be successful, and it happens way too often. All the time. That's right. And other people would write about uh, strategies for complying with the latest standard for uh, electrical safety, or or uh, user interface development, or a variety of things, and uh, and uh, and it stuck, and uh, and. We still generate about fifty pieces of unique content, and uh, and uh, you know just rolling the clock forward. It's the same group, and we still have that same lunch once a month. Wow. And now it's run by our VP of marketing, and uh, not by me. And uh, we every month have a couple of, of our magazine articles that are written by our guys that are carried in the magazines of the industry. Wow. And we get people asked to travel all over North America to deliver speeches. There's probably about ten of our staff that have spoken professionally. Yeah. All over North America on different topics, and uh, wow, and and we actually run conferences now. We actually run a conference every year in Vancouver and Toronto for the medical device industry, and we bring in the top speakers from around North America, top so top medical device entrepreneurs to come speak at our conferences, and they're really highly regarded. And uh, and and well, there's a lot of benefits that have. That, that's just one example, right? Right. So. About halfway through, about uh, 2015, I guess, uh, we stopped to look back at our list, yeah. just out of curiosity. Sure. Uh, I actually, I found it in my office, and I said, "Well, this is this is interesting. Let's let's I'll show this at the next uh, offsite meeting." So I showed the thing, and went down, and we showed that we'd actually ticked off about half the things. We were about halfway through our five-year period. Some of them hadn't even ever turned into a real objective in an annual plan. It's right. just like an idea, but just people putting themselves into that spot, imagining that we'd actually found that we'd actually accomplished most of the things on that list. And, uh, wow. and it's just the power of alignment and vision really. And, mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, um, and, and 
those things made us laugh. Literally, they were just so ridiculous when we wrote them down. Like we're just six guys sitting in a room in Victoria, imagining taking on the world, right? Right. <laughs> and then now you look back and you probably live in a different stratosphere now where you're like, well, of course we could have easily accomplished this. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Like it's, yeah. uh, you sort of take that on after a while. You just sort of, you, you just integrate those, that, uh, that positioning. Of course you are where you are. And, uh, and you don't you sort of take for granted the choices that you made earlier or the bravery that was required at certain spots or so on when you were much smaller and more humble and more constrained. And, uh, yeah, that's the root of it all. Where do you think that comes from, being able to achieve those goals? Uh, you know, there's, there's, I, I don't know if you call it ego. Like there's ego, like having the, uh, the confidence to say, I'm going to take on a big goal. That's ego, right? Yeah. That could be offensive in right. some context. Hey, you're so, you're such a, you're so pretentious, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what's required. Right. It's, it's, you know, I, I don't think that's the same thing as being full of yourself. I think it's just having the boldness to go set a, set a, a, a big goal, right? And, uh, um, but that's, that's, I think, the essence of entrepreneurship. You're in a humble spot, but you imagine yourself in a very successful spot. And, uh, and, you, and you have the boldness to act as if you're going there. It seems like you're unreasonable. I think that's it. Yes, yeah. absolutely unreasonable. Right, yeah. Because you could reason that out, right? Mm -hmm. Each of those items, right, to be, yeah. oh, how could we be the, the 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 key people who people look towards for this this QA system and yeah. of course having a conference and writing all these blog posts? Who are yeah. we, right? Yeah. But who aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, so when you heard about your num, uh, you have many accolades um, and. Um, I'm going to read them again to hopefully embarrass you. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I won't. No, for sure. absolutely won't. But uh, does that surprise you now when you get um, an accolade? Of you know, the, so um, to some extent, um, accolades are a marketing tactic. I'd say, I'd say I, I should uh, uh, like Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year uh, is something that basically you set as a goal and then you go see what you can do to go win it, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know that it will be good in terms of profile and so on. So it's not something that you just sort of humbly accept the accolades of your peers. It's something that you you set out to you set out to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, not that I don't humbly accept the accolades of peers, but um, mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, you it's, aim for it. You aim for it. In our sure. industry, mm -hmm. it's very important to have peer recognition. So it's, it's, it's a form of validation mm -hmm. that enables clients to recognize us and to see that we're a good risk, right? Because they're going to put their future in our hands to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so whatever we can do to make them feel comfortable about that, we need to do. So. Right, it instills confidence. Yeah, that's right. So mm -hmm. every year, we try to win another award of some kind. And so uh, this year, it's the, uh, I think, Exporter of the Year Leadership Award for British Columbia was the one. And last year, it was, uh, I don't remember. But, uh, Viatech was in 2017. No, that's, that's correct. Uh -huh. uh, that's right. So that was the, uh, 
That one was totally out of the blue. That, it that, seemed that, like it, yeah, that which, and I'm totally grateful for that. And also had the opportunity to talk about these ideas yeah. to uh, to biotech mem to the biotech members because um, I I do like inspiring people and helping people uh, to have a bigger vision of themselves and so on. And uh, every time I have a platform to speak, that's why I try to try to help people aim a little higher. In fact, last year's conference. That we ran in Vancouver and Toronto uh, was it's called the Medical Device Playbook, but the subtitle was "Dream a Bigger Dream." Last year, nice. <laughs> and my my title slide from my uh, keynote was uh, "The House from Up." You know the movie Up, oh, yeah, for sure, with yeah. all the balloons. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that, 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 that's, that's a good analogy. <laughs> um, wow, and so when. Have you found uh, with these achievements, uh, about a half dozen achievements here, um, you don't feel yourself resting at that point. You really see, okay, so what will we do next year? Absolutely. Yeah, as a company, we're the aspirational as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And aspirational is not just about growth, right? Mm -hmm. Like at some point, a giant uh, consulting services company stops being, having the heart that it needs to have. So we've always been aware. We only build... This company wants to only grow to a certain size. We're about 140 now. We can see ourselves at maybe 250. Mm. But yeah, so we kind of realized that at some point you just have to uh, get more focused, more strategic, um, uh, more specialized, Mm -hmm. rather than getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. uh, um, But that's okay. I think that's important to recognize that business is not all about just bigger, bigger, bigger. It's about being the right thing. Mm. If you want to be bigger, 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 go start another company. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned you're about 140, um, which is right around Dunbar's number of 121.40. Yeah, that's right. So when you start approaching the high hundreds, do you see yourself as splitting? This is what we are very, did. We are extremely aware of that, yeah. uh, that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time you be bumped, we've sort of bumped into a variety of, of thresholds along the way, right? That's sort of the reinventing the company thing, um, where you're now communicating through five or six layers. Right. Uh, of course we still can get the whole company together for a monthly meeting. So it's not, it's not giant, but, uh, um, we did buy a company in Toronto last year. And, um, so we do have two sites. And we do anticipate that the growth will mostly happen in Toronto. Uh-huh. So we're kind of hoping that that Dunbar number, in essence, can 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 split that. Uh, but we're still wrestling with where that reporting and autonomy boundaries should should live in that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, should we essentially have two somewhat autonomous organizations that have their own sales and their own P&Ls and their own uh, accountability? Which means that they're they're going to be kind of arm wrestling over projects to some right. extent, yeah. uh, and maybe that's okay. But uh, but uh, we're kind of tiptoeing our way into some of those questions, um, and and within the last sort of uh, thirty people of growth or so, I've started to to realize that uh, aligning and pushing our messages of why, why do we do this and so on into the company more firmly than we have in the past or to establish that. that. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things when you're 50 people, right. Then you can 
there's a lot of things that just happen by walking around and noticing things. Right. And when you turn into 100, those things need to be more systematized and mm -hmm. some of those cultural things. And uh, so I find that really interesting. And, uh, and I'm always having insights every day. I find it actually very stimulating to be in this organization uh, and also acting as an advisor in other organizations to sort of see the dynamics at play and think about how to respond. That's interesting. You say you can walk around. Uh, describe Starfish Medical, the oh, physical sure. building. So we, in Victoria, we have one building. Uh, it's out in, in, in near the Uptown Mall on Boleskine Road, uh, 24,000 square feet. So fairly substantial. Uh, we're on three different levels, um, mostly on two levels. But uh, to get between them, you have to actually go outside and then down a, a staircase. So... <laughs> That's not our design, but that's the building that we bought at the time. And right. uh, um, and so that creates its own cultural separation. Absolutely. But, uh, so, so on the ground floor, Boleskine level, we call it, is uh, uh, mostly engineering team mm -hmm. and mostly administration. Mm -hmm. And then when you go downstairs, which is also ground level because it's on a hill, uh, that's all the manufacturing, project work, accounting, mm -hmm. uh, QA team, project labs, and so on. Right. Um, so it's it's actually pretty uh, different when you when you're on the upper level, Boleskine level. It's carpeted, T-bar ceilings. Uh, there's a uh, a row of windows looking out towards the mountains, um, and engineers all sit in long desks, basically. Mm -hmm. long, yeah, open uh, space. It's an open space, yeah. basically six six people per desk. We try to find that balance between uh, sharing and privacy, which is a hard thing, interesting boundary to find. Yeah. Uh, but what you'd see when you walk around is, is little clusters of people talking and pointing at screens and other people maybe with headphones on coding away or or uh, writing emails or reviewing specifications or whatever. And there's kind of clusters of specializations. There's a group of industrial designers thinking about interface things. And then there would, yeah, and what you'll also see is that every meeting room is always full because mm. our work happens collaboratively, right? Mm -hmm. So that, and uh, at any given day, there will be one or two clients visiting from somewhere. Mm. Yesterday, we had a group in from Seattle, mm -hmm. from a, a company based out of San Diego. Mm -hmm. The day before, it was uh, uh, a company out of New York. And um, and every meeting room has got a big screen, and it's all about video conferencing. And so mostly people will be sitting in there, and there will be a face on the screen from or a team on the other screen. <laughs> and they'll be talking about the project and the status and the decisions that they have to make. And uh, so it's it's uh, it's just it feels like a beehive, honestly. When you walk into the, it's just a lot of things going on, and it's, it's it's fun and it's stimulating, and and thirty different programs are all taking shape, and each of them has the ideal, the hope that that company is going to be transformative in their space somehow. Wow. And uh, that we enunciated a vision last year uh, where we said over the next decade, we'd like to have a hundred of our clients become worth more than a hundred million dollars each. We call it the 100 by 100. And um, it's all about how do you amplify entrepreneurship? And how do you help companies design the right thing? 
getting the, that value proposition right. It's so, so hard in a new company. And, uh, and the collaborative structure is the right way to get there. Mm. And so when people approach Starfish now, do they have an idea and funding or do they have um, a product like an MVP built? Um, so typically, we don't typically work with individual uh, entrepreneurs or doctor, doctor with a dream kind of people because right. it's, you know, they need to, uh, they need to, to uh, there's so many hurdles and learnings that they have to have to get to the end point. It's, it's uh, to, and to work with us, we're inherently pretty expensive because we have all these specialties and we do training and all this regulatory infrastructure and so on. Right. So we like to work with teams that are on their second or third uh, medical device company. Uh, they, they've got the credibility to raise a few million dollars to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. They understand that building their company is going to cost them $20 million and it's going to take them five years and that we're one of the pieces along the way and, and we're critical for them to raise their next $5 million at a $15 million valuation, right? Right. And again, that amplification. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of our people understand that as well. Right. So we, we don't get ahead of ourselves. We design the right thing to create the value, to, to get the risks out of it so that they can raise it at the right valuation. Wow, that's a fascinating uh, part of the um, product arc that you're located in. Yeah. And the fact that it's also maybe the second or third product that they've been in, yeah. they're probably a little more proven. They understand that failure is common. They've probably had a couple of failures. Yeah, I think so it's, it's you know, more tried and true. There's this th idea called the lean startup, right? That's kind of, that's pretty common. And the lean startup really takes the idea that a startup company is a series of experiments, mm -hmm. right? You, you enunciate your biggest risks, and some of them are technical risks, like can you sense that cell with this method mm -hmm. uh, or whatever the thing is. Can you cut out cancer with this technique in surgically or can you align the bone better with if you could measure this thing better or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also, if you could do that, would people buy it? Mm -hmm. That's obviously the biggest risk as well, right? And if you could make it, could you make it so that the reimbursement they get for doing the surgery would allow them to pay for it? It's mm -hmm. like, it's, that's, so the risks are much bigger than the pure technical. Mm -hmm. And we can actually help them address risks across that spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, But partly it's just that we understand that's their language. And launching the product is just another experiment. Right. Because you're, uh, um, you know, in medical, you can't just sell, start selling stuff. You have to have it through a regulatory thing. There's application process. There's clinical trials. There's all sorts of expensive stuff right. that you got to do. Uh, but you can still get at some of those risks in, in other ways to try, at least mitigate them as best you can. Mm -hmm. But whatever you launch, chances are you'll be following it up with the right product mm -hmm. or you'll be adapting it in some way. And uh, so, and each of those uh, risk mitigation sort of milestones mm -hmm. from getting a patent approved to proving your product, your biggest technical risk in the lab to... Uh, trying it on patients and having it work to uh, proving that people will pay the price that you need to have the, the, uh, to buy it. Those are all risk mitigations that make your value much higher, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, that's essentially the game. Mm -hmm. I'm struck by an interesting idea. 
Um, if you were to remove uh, from your description of your company anything medically related and purely business related, yeah, you are to medical devices as what would you say other companies are in different industries? What type of yeah? So in the consumer product industry, it would be a company mm-hmm. like Ideo or uh, Design Continuum. These are sort of the iconic. Uh, product definition companies. Uh, and so IDEO started out as a company kind of like ours. Mm-hmm. And what they realized was that the, the highest value was actually in the product definition. Mm-hmm. They could get the best fees, get the best margins. And where you tend to blow up a project is where you have to actually make the thing real. Mm-hmm. And then you it's accountability is sort of natural when the thing either works or doesn't, right? But, uh, but with, if you get to say, we, we have the big idea, here's the breakthrough concept alignment with the market. Now it's on you guys to go implement it. Let's right. say, uh, uh, and I don't mean to sell them short in any ways. That's a really of smart course. place to be. Yeah. Um, um, and so they became very successful doing that. And Design Continuum is based in Boston and they, yeah. uh, they became very successful. I think at their peak, they're around 250 people with offices around the world. Um, in uh, in consumer, and then we're not so aware what exists in aerospace, satellite design, or in right. uh, in in whatever well, in whole, design whole of, of power plants or something. Right. I'm sure that there's <laughs> auto. Or, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that whatever industry you can imagine, that there's specialty service companies that do that. And had you realized that you were a product definition company early, or is that a little bit later? Epiphany. Uh, that's a great uh, question. So I think to some extent, a startup company is a reflection of the founder and the, and the, the owner, right? And uh, so to some extent, Starfish reflects my quirks and, and, uh, and that's my quirk is being an abstract thinker and always trying to find another level of insight. And so Starfish has come to be a company that's always looking for another level of insight and uh, solving a bigger problem. And have you looked to those other co- uh, companies like IDEO and whatnot um, and pulled knowledge from that or learning? From yeah, so that's it. So I, I raised Design Continuum as an example, partly because one of our advisory board members is was the head of design at Design Continuum for a decade. And uh, we also have another one of their their, their, the actual, the, the, the chief operating officer who really built that company mm. is an advisor to us as well. Mm. So uh, we think there's a lot to be learned from, and we've always been aspirational that way as well. We formed an advisory board probably 12 years ago, and we're aspirational. Went out to find top people from around North America, asked them to be on our advisory board, set two full day meetings per year. People were actually asked to travel. We make formal board materials show them all of our financials, our plans, our accomplishments, our challenges, our screw-ups, whatever, and then we spend a day talking about that. And, uh, and uh, so uh, that's been a powerful thing too. I've, I've got, they, the advisors always ask me at the end of a meeting, so did you get what you were hoping for? And I, and I always say, you know, I got most of what I was hoping for before the meeting started. Because all through the six months between meetings, I've got these advisors standing on my shoulder. They're about this big. They just stand up there. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they say, 
you know, that, that scary change that you, you said you were going to make. How's it coming? Because we're right. going to ask you about it next uh, right. that, uh, during the next meeting. Right. And so I find in the latter part of the six months that that's when I tend to make these the uh, the bigger changes that I need to, to make mm-hmm. because I, I don't want to face those guys that I respect a lot without having had the bravery to make the changes. Absolutely. Almost like um, um, cramming for a test. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't for deadlines. So it's, I think it, to some extent it's... When you're an entrepreneur, and in my case, an entrepreneur that owns the company, so there's not really any board that can fire me or anything, which is good and bad. So how can I create a sense of accountability like that? Right. That, so that's so that's the, the function of that advisory board. That's interesting. And then had you thought of that at the time, or that's something you learned over time, which is, wow, oh, I have built a system of accountability. Shh. I mean, I, I read a lot of books, I, and I talk to a lot of people there's ideas flowing through all all the time, right? And once in a while, they coalesce into some sort of an initiative. Um, sure. So that one started off with me just liking to connect with people. And there was a couple of people that I used to meet with regularly. Um, and um, um, and then one of them suggested, hey, we should maybe turn this into some sort of a, uh, a bigger thing. And so I, I actually went out to, uh, to uh, California to... Uh, uh, somebody who'd been an advisor to one of our clients, uh-huh. sort of a guru of the ophthalmology space. And I got to know him through the calls that we had and so on. So I, um, I called him up, asked him, would he be willing to be an advisor to our company? And it's kind of a, a little outrageous in the sense that I, I had no, no business going after him <laughs> in some respect. But, but, uh, but I was amazed. He said yes, and he was actually willing to travel and uh, wow. be part of it. And um, and so he's been with us for twelve years, and, and uh, it's been great. That must have been so humbling when he first said that. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I found um, as I grow older, you realize that people who have made it, they're further along. They really do want to help you, and um, I th- I think that's that takes some learning to get to that point to appreciate that there's plenty of people out there who are just waiting for you to ask i think that's totally true in fact if you ask people who are in the last quarter of their career mm-hmm. there's kind of where their mind is going to right like okay as i uh, wind up my career how am i going to have an impact and uh, well i think that's a great place to leave it um scott phillips thank you so much for coming in i really appreciate it it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for asking. Um, let me uh, say thanks again to Roundtable Consulting for sponsoring this podcast. They serve organizations in providing facilitation and research, as well as business and strategic planning needs. Please look for them if you need any help with reconciliation from building a more inclusive workplace to end uh, all along the way to diversity training. Um, my thanks again to roundtableconsulting.ca and to Manjinder Benning for the audio um, and quadratic sound for uh, hopefully the wonderful sound that you've had. Uh, Thanks again for joining Coded in Canada and have a great day.